I'll never apologize for the United States of America. Ever. No respect, no honor. There is no honor among thieves in the first place. For the past three months, I've been silent on the revelations about Iran. And you must have been thinking, well, why doesn't he tell us what's happening? Why doesn't he just speak to us as he has in the past when we've faced troubles or tragedies? I don't care what the facts are. I will lead her. You don't know what hard times are, Daddy. Hard times are when the textile workers around this country are out of work. They got four or five kids and can't pay their wages, can't buy their food. Others of you, I guess, were thinking, what's he doing hiding out in the White House? Well, the reason I haven't spoken to you before now is this. You deserve the truth. I will do my level best to stand up for freedom and democracy around the world by keeping the United States of America strong. Hard times are when the auto workers are out of work and they tell them go home. And hard times are when a man has worked at a job 30 years. 30 years. They give him a watch, kick him in the butt and say, hey, a computer took your place, daddy. That's hard times. I've paid a price for my silence in terms of your trust and confidence. But I've had to wait, as you have, for the complete story. And we all had hard times together. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad. And there were two bad people. One was John Wayne and he's dead, brother. And the other one's right here. A few months ago, I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. As we welcome change in the world, but keeping our eyes wide open. I had a dream about this place. episode 45 of ghost stories for the end of the world hope you're good tonight my intention was as we've been trying to do for the last few weeks cut a nice lean mean 45 minutes to an hour's worth of uh, content and be done with it and my hope was that i could do a kind of an exercise in comparing and contrasting Ronald Reagan, the president of the United States, and Agar Hassan Abedi, the, the founder of BCCI, because I think both of them have um, a few things in common with each other that might help us understand their time a little better. You know, uh, for one thing, both of them were performers. Both of them had these strange utopian ideas. They had visions of shining cities on hills, as it were, in their minds. Both of them were connected to and hopelessly dependent on networks of networks, subterranean networks, 
that collided and reacted in this feverish period of time that the entire Casino miniseries has been um, concerned with. You know, this period of time when the deep state, for lack of a better term, in America was undergoing a profound shift in the way that it did business, you know, in the wake of all the revelations and controversies of the early 1970s. That was my intention. But obviously, if you are talking about Reagan in the years leading up to uh, his election as president, if you are talking about Abadi in the years where BCCI is just beginning to make its first tentative um, steps into the, the American financial system and, of course, the American intelligence community, then all hope of keeping that kind of a story to 45 minutes to an hour all that hope dies, my friends. Um, I do really sincerely not intend to make a habit of this, but there simply was no other way to stop this ballooning the way that it did. And by the time I'd finished working on my notes for the show, the, the stories, the plots, the subplots, the branching lines of inquiry, they're so kind of interconnected and entwined with each other that it was impossible to neatly separate any of this into more digestible chunks you know so i'm hopeful that you will just make liberal use of that pause button as and when you need to so we still will attempt this compare and contrast exercise but i think you'll see as we go along that will fall uh, by the wayside because a bigger story will begin to emerge and once again George Bush turns out to be the secret protagonist of this so yeah it's a very tangled and messy story and I want to start I want to kick off by focusing on Reagan and um, emphasizing character over plot you know because we're, we are concerned with why Reagan made sense as the frontman for the new deep state, just like Agar Hassan Abedi made sense as a frontman for BCCI, okay? And we want to know what, what drove them. And this entails looking hard at a number of relationships and connections while keeping the broader story we're telling about reform and transformation um, in mind. Now, the primary reason for me that Reagan was an ideal frontman is because he was already established as a man who knew how to work a room. It's that simple. He could deliver the, you know, the odd laconic quip. He could return a favor, very important, and he could keep secrets most important. Uh, he'd been a member of Bohemian Grove, still was a member, and he was a staunch anti-communist. You know, these are all huge green ticks um, on the Reagan checklist. And in 1947, as uh, president of the Screen Actors Guild and an FBI informer, he appeared before the House Un-American Activities Committee and he went to town on the Reds that he believed had infiltrated every area of Hollywood, of showbiz. And he wrapped up by saying, uh, in reference to, you know, leftist union organizers in the film industry, quote, I detest, 
I abhor their philosophy, but I detest more than that their tactics, which are those of the fifth column, and are dishonest, but at the same time, I never as a citizen want to see our country become urged by either fear or resentment of this group that we ever compromise with any of our democratic principles through that fear or resentment. I still think that democracy can do it. Now, the reason I find that quote so interesting and I bring it up here is because even back then, you know, the, the 1940s, you can see the Reagan method, you know, in kind of embryonic form because that kind of quote is something that Reagan would, would summon frequently. You know, he would front load some choice eyebrow-raising rhetoric, very reactionary, designed to appeal to the, the sensibilities of whoever it was he was trying to impress. And then he'd throw in some weak nods, you know, towards democracy and freedom to wrap it up. Um, there were plenty of occasions when he came a little too close to breaking kayfabe, you know, like the time we've mentioned before when he said that he wanted to see the 60s student protest movement in California. He wanted to see that defeated, even if it took a bloodbath. But for the most part, he was adept at slathering a kind of gooey, feel-good optimism on top of some pretty vicious, reactionary, uh, ugly sentiment, you know. Now, once in office, uh, he favoured a, a form of deregulation and hands-off governance that appealed to the more radical libertarian elements in the US elite and intelligence services. Don't forget that a large part of what had been driving the CIA since its, its foundation was a profound distaste for the, the New Deal economics of, of FDR and the post-war social contracts, the social consensus. So Reagan, um, while talking about you know, freedom and liberty and whatnot, he was more than happy to endorse the use of staggering state-sanctioned violence and covert ops to win domestic battles against the insurgent forces of the new left. You know, in California, as governor, he'd overseen a program of repression against the counterculture that was eerily reminiscent of the Phoenix program in Vietnam. And that shouldn't be any surprise because he packed out his office with so many veterans of that campaign. Spooks haunted every level of his administration. And they worked with other spooks that had been seeded in agencies like, you know, the LAPD to give the hippies and the black militants a taste of what the US was getting up to in, in Southeast Asia. Now, when Reagan first announced he was going to run for governor in California, the Washington Star said there was, quote, an air of jubilation down at Lassie for governor headquarters. You know, they were so derisive of him, so mocking, and the sentiment was shared across the board and not just by, you know, like the radical underground or left liberal journalists and commentators, but also by people in Reagan's own party. Um, on a tape recorded in April of 1971, Nixon is heard discussing the the possibility of a, a Reagan, an eventual Reagan presidency. 
And he says this, quote, with Reagan in here, you could damn well almost get yourself in a nuclear war. The pioneer, friends, of the madman theory of international relations, he thought that Reagan's foreign policy would be a threat to all life on the planet. So Reagan was a, a B-movie actor whose personality and backstory shifted and changed depending on who he was talking to. And it's a cliche to say it now. It's already become a, a cliche so quickly, but he really was a proto-Trump, you know. His wife, for example, she was dismissed by, you know, the, the well-educated, um, profoundly thoughtful uh, intelligentsia, liberal intelligentsia in the States. She was dismissed as a trashy, a trashy rube, basically. Uh, you know, I'm sure you're aware of the, the supposed nickname she had, Nancy, which was the blowjob queen of Hollywood. Reagan himself was known as a snitch and a bullshit artist who'd parlayed a, a middling showbiz profile into a political career. And this um, recurring this recurring fact of his life of being consistently underestimated and dismissed out of hand, that became a hallmark of his political career until the day he became president. Nobody saw him coming. That sounds like somebody else, doesn't it? You know. Now, after he left office, many of these these same pundits who'd mocked him and taken the piss out of the idea of President Reagan. Once he was out of the White House, they turned around and lauded him as one of the great statesmen of the 20th century. You know, the man who defeated Soviet totalitarianism with action movie swagger and Coca-Cola flavored apple pie Americana and so on and so forth. And eventually they would be pushing for him to be added to Mount Rushmore and even to replace Roosevelt on the dime. Uh, we went through a similar sort of process here in Britain with Margaret Thatcher. So how did he manage this? Well, he had a good team of fixers and publicists around him. His machine was very well drilled and performed, to be fair, some astonishing feats of organizing. Uh, he won over the GOP grandees and the Republican base with rhetoric about America's inherent decency and its grand destiny. And he embraced the emerging evangelical right and sought to assuage the concerns of voters who were still reeling and wounded by the advances made in areas like civil rights, gay liberation, women's liberation. And his people sought to harness what I've seen called the tyranny of the minority, you know, basically. Reagan's people would call this group the silent majority. And I, I guess I've seen the joke before, which is the joke about that is that it's neither silent nor the majority. Um, but it is that section of American society that views social progress as their looming enslavement, you know, and it responds with petulance and outright violence when it seems like a little too much equality and justice is, is creeping in to uh, the American experiment. Now that Reagan embraced this dog whistle approach to the far right of the GOP base, that is illustrative of how slippery and amoral he was, you know, as a younger man. Reagan was actually relatively outspoken for the time, relatively, you know, in his opposition to segregation and, and racism. 
his dad had actually brought him up to oppose the Ku Klux Klan. And Reagan was a big supporter of equal rights in the years, you know, immediately after World War II. He was kind of a, a classic liberal Republican for a, a small window of time. And yet, he was happy to throw all of that out of the window when it was time to crack heads in California in the late 60s and whip up support for his White House bid. He would be whatever he needed to be or was required to be if it brought him power. And that is very attractive to certain people. Ronald Reagan performed greatness like nobody had before and like nobody would again until the rise of Barack Obama. Decades, this is decades in advance of Trump, on some primitive reptile brain level, Reagan had sussed that the line between entertainment and politics in America wasn't as starkly drawn and insurmountable as other people thought. Um, in the parlance of professional wrestling, <laughs> if you'll forgive me this, what Reagan did was present himself as the ultimate white meat baby face, standing against the ultimate heel faction, which was the communists abroad and the subversives and welfare parasites at home. He didn't make speeches, folks. He cut promos and he wasn't just there to occupy the White House. He was presented as the great unifier. He was the man who looked at the gloomy chaos of the 1970s and said, enough is enough, you know. He was going to offer sunshine optimism and psychedelic visions of a better world to come. And he was going to filter this through a bizarre mishmash of Norman Rockwell, American Christianity, the Beach Boys, Disney movies, and the black and white morality of Hollywood Westerns. In the 1970s, while every level of American society seemed mired in anguished soul searching about the bigger purpose of the national project, you know, in the wake of the retreat from Vietnam, um, in the wake of the revelations about MKUltra and, you know, CIA abuses and FBI abuses domestically and Watergate more than anything else, Reagan refused to entertain any notions that any of this meant that a rethink was needed. He stood in implacable opposition to any deeper analysis of how and why America had ended up where it was. So yeah, good humor, laconic good humor, and a blithe denial of reality. They were going to be his weapons. When he was asked for an opinion about Watergate, for example, Reagan said, quote, it's part of the usual atmosphere of campaigning. It's a tragedy that men who are not criminals at heart and certainly would not commit criminal or illegal acts must bear the consequences. Now, he said this while the story was still unfolding, you know, and his sentiments were so at odds with the prevailing mood, even amongst a large number of people in the Republican Party, that his handlers scrambled to make him withdraw these comments and Dutch he just shrugged it off and they told him, you know, at least give non-committal answers if you get asked about it again. He said, no, he wasn't going to do that. And when Spiro Agnew was facing investigation for accepting payoffs, Reagan said, 
I have known Ted Agnew to be an honest and honourable man. The Watergate Committee hearings are a witch hunt. Reagan's project, ultimately, was going to be about overlaying a carefully knitted fabric of dreams and mythology onto the blunt, bloody reality of American power and the vicious economic revolution that he would implement that would leave millions of people destitute. He was creating a narrative of redemption and whatever sins the US had committed, they could be easily transcended because of America's inherent perfection. He wanted to go beyond, you know, just speechifying to this effect. He wanted to fully embody this narrative. Um, in 1977, the New York Times asked 100 notable Americans what books had influenced them the most as children. And Reagan listed King Arthur, Northern Trails, Frank Merriwell at Yale, and John Carter, Warlord of Mars. Um, he also mentioned that that printer of Udell's, uh, which is a, a Horatio Elga-style tale of a, a young man on the make who finds God and transforms his rundown community into a model of what one character calls common sense business Christianity. And the character of Frank Merriwell is a beloved student at Yale, and he's crowned king of the freshmen. Reagan cited this book in particular as the template for his early adulthood um, at Eureka College, which is where he went. Dutch effectively became Frank Merriwell. Uh, he captained the football and the swimming teams. He became a cheerleader for the basketball team. And he served as president of the debate and drama clubs. And even this early, he was performing greatness, you know. And also of note to deep political operators was Reagan's uncanny ability to toss off false stories about his background, made up statistics, obvious obviously ridiculous claims and easily sidestep any criticism or fact-checking. I mean, we like to think that Donald Trump was uniquely terrible for this, but you only need to have a brief skim of Reagan's biography to see just how often he got away with making incredible, surreal statements without any evidence. I mean, this is the man who ran for public office and said the nine most frightening words in the English language were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So without getting too into the weeds on his time as governor, uh, California ended up a billion dollars in surplus in 1973, and Reagan devised Proposition 1, which was a promise to cap taxes as a way to return this surplus to the taxpayer. And two men in particular helped him design the policy, and here we can see the, the contours, the outline of Reagan's presidency and his economic policies. One was Ed Meese. Meese was nicknamed Reagan's geographer. Um, he had the knack of being able to explain complex political and economic concepts in simple terms to Reagan that you know would usually bring Dutch on side. Meese advised Reagan to declare a state of emergency during the People's Park protests in Berkeley. And that is what led to the National Guard being deployed. Uh, he would go on to serve as Reagan's White House counsel. He became a middleman 
in Iran-Contra and a liaison between Reagan and the evangelical movement. He was also an architect of Nancy Reagan's Just Say No anti-drug campaign. Meeks would also be implicated in a number of other controversies that suggested he'd used his position to enrich himself and his friends while he was in office. One of these was the WedTech scandal. Now, this is a mostly forgotten scandal now, but basically WedTech was awarded a number of defense contracts um, without going through the proper bidding process. They fraudulently claimed that they were a minority-owned small business, and as such, you know, they were exempt from the usual uh, bidding process. The WedTech case probably merits its own episode, but there's an incredible chain of connections to explore if you have a, a spare hour. <laughs> uh, so for example, there's a general called Vito Castellano. He would end up pleading guilty to evading taxes on payments that he received from WedTech in order to connect the firm with political players in the state of New York. Castellano had been the commander of the New York National Guard. He was the chief of staff to Governor Mario Cuomo. Cuomo, of course. He is the father of noted sex pests Andrew and Chris Cuomo. Castellano himself was introduced to Meese through Reagan's press secretary, Lynn Nofziger. And Castellano also just happened to be first cousins with Paul Castellano. He was the Gambino family boss who took over from Carlo and he was killed on John Gotti's orders. Uh, Meese was also directly accused of overseeing the theft and sale of the Inslaw firm's Promise computer software. And he was also reprimanded for paying Israel not to bomb an oil pipeline from Iraq to Jordan that he was trying to set up with the Bechtel Corporation. Meese <laughs> is a true gangster, basically. The other guy helping Reagan devise Proposition 1 was Milton Friedman. And as Lenny Ebenstein has described him, quote, in the immediate post-World War II era, Friedman's free market sympathies marked him, at least among intellectuals, as something of a crank. Yet by the 1980s, his theories had made a notable comeback in academic circles, and in economic policy, they had gained ascendancy over the liberal Keynesian consensus that prevailed in the 1950s and the 60s. As the left-wing Harvard economist John Kenneth Galbraith ruefully conceded, the age of John Maynard Keynes gave way to the age of Milton Friedman. Now, Friedman's influence over politicians like Reagan and Thatcher has been documented at length, as has, you know, the group of Chilean economists that he taught at the University of Chicago. And without wanting to get too great, man, about all this, we are very much living in a world fundamentally shaped by the economic science that was supported and promulgated by people like Milton Friedman, uh, Arnold Haberger, he's another guy, and they're, you know, they're adjacent disciples and hangers-on. Friedman had Reagan's ear almost from the beginning because so much of what he wrote chimed with Reagan's notion of government as being the enemy of the middle classes. Now, as it had so many times before, California was serving with Proposition 1 as a lab for a new technology of power. 
And yeah, P1 was going to be a crucial test case for Reagan. It was going to be a way to see if he could persuade voters that the government was evil, that the post-war consensus was harmful to prosperity. And yeah, how would he deal with the counter-arguments to this scheme? Well, he dodged them. He tossed off another appeal to American destiny uh, as much as he could, uh, or another sorry speech, you know. And he also worked in this concept of government spending as being exactly the same as a household budget. He drilled that into people, or did his best to at least. And that's something that continues to serve as a smokescreen for the kind of austerity economics that we're still saddled with today here in Britain and in America as well. The most obvious counterpoint to Reagan's proposal was that if spending was out of control in California, how did the state end up in surplus? Reagan's response was this, quote, are we automatically destined to tax and spend, spend and tax indefinitely until the people have nothing left of their earnings for themselves? Have we abandoned or forgotten the taxpayer whose toil makes government possible in the first place? Or is he to become a pawn in a deadly game of government monopoly whose only purpose is to serve the confiscatory appetite of runaway government spending? Now this as a response to a pretty simple and totally different question. It is demented, it's unhinged, and Proposition 1 was soundly rejected by the voters. But as Rick Perlstein pointed out in 2012, this wasn't the end of the war. Quote, why did Proposition 1 fail? Were the ideological conditions not yet ripe? In fact, the ideological conditions were quite different then. An editorial on Proposition 1, titled Voters Smarter Than Reagan, appeared in the Milwaukee Journal. It praised the Californians who saw through the phoniness and recognized the menace to the well-being of the Commonwealth of this scheme. The journal continued, quote within a quote, The proposition had the surface appeal of the politician's favorite but false homily that says that government should live within its income like everyone else. Government, in fact, is uniquely different. It must be able to determine the level of its own income. Here is a provincial newspaper, late in 1973, recognizing as utterly illogical what is today conventional wisdom among liberal Democrats and Barack Obama. So from the war on the counterculture to his ruthless slash and burn approach to public spending, you know, his steadfast refusal to speak out against the CIA in the 70s and his tidying up to the feds during the Red Scare. You can read so much of what he did as an audition, you know, for the real power brokers in American society, the people who could get him where he wanted to be, which was the White House. Now, John Kenneth Galbraith neatly summed up Reagan's worldview, quote, Reaganomics is a tax policy based on a notion of incentives which says that the rich aren't working because they have too little money and the poor aren't working because they have too much. Now say what you want about Nixon, and there is plenty to say, believe me, but he knew enough to despise and fear what he called the beast, which was that constellation of spooks, political operatives and wealthy elites who really run things in America. Remember that in 1967, uh, supposedly, 
He and Reagan had brokered a gentleman's agreement at Bohemian Grove, and Reagan had promised to only contest the Republican nomination if it looked like Nixon was going to lose the primary. And both of them had intimate dealings with the beast. But while Nixon eventually came to be repulsed by it, you know, as he did with virtually everything and everyone he ever encountered, by contrast, Reagan embraced it. And because of his economic policies, his strident anti-communism, the loyalty that he'd shown to the party of the elite and the intelligence community, which is the Republican Party at that time, his uh, ferociously anti-Soviet foreign policy, his adept manipulation of the reactionary right wing. Because of all this, the beast embraced him. He was its man. He was the man who they could see if they gave him a push. He was going to complete that final assault on the, the New Deal consensus. He was going to undo the new regulations and policy changes brought in to try and curtail the activity of the security state. He was going to give them everything. He was going to give them the world. But getting him to the White House, that wouldn't be easy, you know. In 1976, there's that year again, Gerald Ford lost the election to Jimmy Carter by a hair. Uh, Carter took just 50.8% of the popular vote. Reagan was singled out as a reason why Ford lost. And he contested the Republican nomination throughout the convention. I'm told that that is practically unheard of. And then he pretty much refused to do any campaigning for Ford afterwards. Uh, even before this, in 1975, Reagan and the more conservative side of the Republican Party, they'd spent a lot of time criticizing Ford's presidency and, and his leadership capabilities. And this brings us to something pretty interesting that speaks to the broader theme of change and reform that we've been looking at since part one of Casino. If we look at the 20 years leading up to Reagan's election, we see that a recurring source of tension in the American political system is the CIA being continually at loggerheads with the president. Kennedy had the Bay of Pigs. He fired Alan Dulles. He promised to splinter the agency into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. Lyndon Johnson was able to push through his great society policies in part because he agreed to prioritize, you know, halting the spread of communism and expanding uh, America's involvement in Vietnam. Nixon was convinced the CIA was out to get him and demanded that they send him all their files on the Kennedy assassination in Cuba while he pursued a policy of detente with the Soviet Union. Uh, the agency actually flat out refused to send him documentation, which that is a remarkable flex, you know. Nixon then fired CIA director Richard Helms. He replaced him with James Schlesinger and gave him a license to, um, I believe his ex Nixon's expression was, turn the place inside out, referring to Langley. And Schlesinger then fired around a thousand CIA staff and solicited the reports that became the family jewels and exposed the existence of programs like MKUltra and, you know, the assassination ops. Uh, just like Kennedy, Nixon was outmaneuvered by the agency. And the fallout from Watergate, which Nixon immediately and correctly, in my opinion, 
suspected was some kind of agency operation that removed him from the White House. The resentment the CIA felt was the presidency. That only increased throughout the 70s. Uh, Gerald Ford's attempts to protect the agency notwithstanding. Even with someone relatively compliant like Ford in the White House, the interplay between the deep state, for lack of a better term again, and the presidency was murky and it was complicated. And nothing encapsulates that better than the Rockefeller Commission, which was Ford's attempt to gesture at transparency and reform while secretly working to remove especially damaging information from the final report. Now, we discussed how his underling, Dick Cheney, he took the point here. He removed 86 pages that detailed CIA black ops and assassination operations. Now, Ford's time as president was made all the more difficult by the precariousness of his position. Um, don't forget, he hadn't been elected because he was Nixon's replacement. And it was during his time in office that we saw Rumsfeld and Cheney emerge as very influential political operators in their own right. And it was at least in part because of the influence of Rumsfeld and Cheney and the non-stop criticism from the more hardline conservatives in the GOP, especially Reagan, over Ford's leadership, over how he was handling the fallout of Watergate and the CIA revelations. It's because of this that Ford organized what became known as the Halloween Massacre. Now, this was a massive shakeup of personnel that represented a further shift to the right. It was an attempt to appease the ultra-conservative wing of the Republican Party. Uh, so Kissinger was out as the National Security Advisor and Brent uh, Scowcroft replaced him. Now, Scowcroft would return to the same role under Poppy Bush. Bush himself, of course, replaced William Colby as CIA director. And this move particularly pleased the old boy network, um, as we've discussed before. And then Archibald Roosevelt Jr., he was particularly taken with George Bush as, as the new head of the CIA. Uh, Roosevelt was Teddy's grandson, and he'd been one of the CIA's top Arabist officers. By 76, he was the vice president of Chase Manhattan Bank. Remember, the Bush family were operatives for that network of um, Eastern establishment types. And in his memoirs, Roosevelt described Colby and James Schlesinger, uh, two of Nixon's appointees, by the way, as, quote, betraying their oaths and offices by pandering to politicians. And this is very much in keeping in line with the U.S. power elite's view of politics and politicians, which is that elected representatives are really only there to offer a thin facsimile of legitimacy to the American um, democratic system. But the people who ought rightfully to be allowed to make decisions um, that have real, you know, historic consequence are people like, you know, your Roosevelt's, your Bushes, your Dulles's. And then, of course, we have um, Schlesinger himself being replaced as Secretary of Defense by Rumsfeld. And then we have Nelson Rockefeller standing down as Ford's running mate for the 1976 election. Again, Rockefeller viewed as 
a liberal Republican almost, and therefore suspect in the increasingly rightward turn that the GOP uh, was taking. Now, Ford would later describe the Halloween massacre as the greatest mistake of his political career and his failure here to stand against the ultra-conservatives would mark another step towards the final consolidation of deep power that the Reagan years represented. Now, even for all that he was trying to appease the hardline element, some strange things still happened during Ford's term. And he still had to deal, for example, with an assassination attempt by none other than Manson groupie Squeaky Fromm. And then 17 days after that, a woman called Sarah Jane Moore tried to pop him in San Francisco. And unlike Fromm, Moore actually managed to get two shots off. Would it surprise you to learn that Sarah Jane Moore was fascinated by Patty Hearst and the SLA? That she'd even worked for Randolph Hearst's People in Need charity, which he set up on the orders of the SLA? that she'd also been involved in the Women's Army Corps, and that the year she tried to kill Ford, she had actually been vetted by the Secret Service and they declared that she was harmless. And then she'd been arrested for illegally carrying a gun and 113 rounds of ammunition, but the cops still let her walk. She'd also been working as an FBI informant right up to the day when she tried to kill the president. This should give you cause to raise an eyebrow, to say the very least. When Jimmy Carter arrived in the White House, the agency was deeply skeptical that he would play ball. Um, During his campaign, for example, he promised time and again to end the culture of secrecy that surrounded Langley. Uh, During one speech, he said, quote, if the CIA ever makes a mistake, I'll be the one as president to call a press conference and I'll tell you and the American people, this is what happened. These are the people who violated the law. This is the punishment I recommend. This is the corrective action that needs to be taken. And I promise you, it won't happen again. Now, we discussed a while back how sometimes, you know, with this stuff, helps to remember that even if we know a politician wasn't as radical as um, their supporters or their critics make out, what matters when we're dealing with how they bumped heads with, you know, Uh, the the system of power politics. What matters is how they were perceived by operatives in that system. And perception plays a big part in this story, the entire story of Casino we've been telling. I think we mentioned either last episode or the episode before that it's usually painted as a period of time when the CIA seemed on the brink of destruction. It's painted as an era when the the very future of the agency was in doubt, but that elides the fact that they were actually extending their reach further and further and further, even while they were being assailed, you know, by scandal and controversy. But because, you know, the winners write the history books, (laughs) they genuinely did feel like they were on the verge of complete defeat in the mid seventies. You know, objectively speaking, if we step back, that wasn't the case at all, but that's not how it felt to them, you know, in the moment. And it's important to keep this broader historical context in mind when we discuss Reagan, because it helps us understand why the beast looked on him so favorably as the primary campaigns began in 1979. Reagan 
wasn't offering reform. He wasn't going to tear up the CIA and scatter it to the winds. There would be no anxious phone calls to Langley, demanding to see classified files about dead presidents or botched invasions. There would be no detente with the Soviets or questions about how the CIA did business. There would be a hands-off approach, massive deregulation of the American economy, and Reagan wouldn't ask too many questions. His economic ideas were mouth-watering to the deep state milieu and their friends in business. But there was one major selling point of Reagan as president that appealed to the beast over and above everything else. Because essentially, Reagan really was going to prove to be the great healer, if not of the national divide, then certainly of the one that had sprung up in the US deep state after Watergate. Remember what we discussed um, in the last episode about the Safari Club. The Schlesinger memo had indirectly led to a split in the agency between the bright-eyed idealists who opposed the black ops and the more extreme methods of the agency, or at least professed to, and the old boys who cleaved more towards that dullest vision of what central intelligence could and should be used for. Now, this divide between the idealists and the pragmatists, that had always been there, but the turmoil of the post-Watergate years deeply exacerbated it. And it was part of the reason why, for a brief moment, uh, the existence of the agency it, it seemed rather shaky, seemed in doubt, um, at least to the people inside Langley at the top under Reagan, precisely because he would take such a hands-off approach to intelligence underworld matters. A sort of informal truce was going to be declared between the public-facing CIA, you know, the idealists, the true believers, and the old boys. And additionally, as more and more intelligence work was outsourced to private interests throughout the 1980s, which, you know, of course mirrored developments in the broader economy, that veneer of plausible deniability that the agency covets, that was easier than ever to manufacture. And this, in turn, meant that Reagan's administration basically became a harm for all the parapolitical agents that we've discussed right from the beginning of our time in America. The Safari Club, BCCI, and the Bush Enterprise. They're three of the most obvious examples of what this coming consolidation would look like in practice. Because, you know, we often say, the CIA did this or the CIA did that, but we don't really acknowledge the nuanced and murky relationship between the agency and the private entities and individuals that it uses and works with. So the CIA then effectively becomes a kind of catch-all term for spook operations. It's a handy shortcut, basically. But sometimes that elides a lot of nuance and context. So I'll give you um, an example of what I'm talking about. In the Kerry Committee report, the BCCI affair, um, which is what it's called, much attention is given to the relationship between BCCI and the CIA because what vexed the committee investigators was the puzzle of how much the CIA knew about BCCI involvement in organized crime, in espionage, in terrorism, and the bank's takeover of First American. 
and they were also concerned with how much assistance and support the CIA had lent the bank. And this led to a merry dance where the Kerry Committee fired off letters requesting information, and the CIA, in response, sandbagged and feigned ignorance. Quote, Cleared staff requested a formal briefing from CIA staff concerning the CIA's knowledge of BCCI's activities. The CIA provided an oral briefing at its offices in June 1991 at the secret level, consisting of a very general information concerning BCCI's use by drug traffickers, material which was by then already largely a matter of public record. The briefer provided by the CIA to congressional staff was unfamiliar with other basic information about BCCI such as the names of BCCI shareholders, including former Saudi intelligence chief Kamal Adham, the key figure in the bank's secret takeover of First American, and the CIA's former principal contact in the Arab Middle East. Further, the briefer also appeared to be ignorant of the principal analytic documents concerning BCCI previously prepared by the CIA and disseminated to executive branch agencies, which contain this and other more important information about BCCI. So note here the layers of bureaucratic confusion that the CIA uses to their benefit, of course, like any self-respecting intelligence agency. And look at the way that much of what they're releasing, as noted, that seems meaningful until it turns out that it's been public knowledge for years. And the fact that they gave investigators a briefer, which had apparently been written to make it seem like they had no idea about their own earlier investigations into the bank, is quite an eyebrow raiser. This is a really good trick, or a series of tricks even, that the CIA um, has been using for the better part of its existence, but which it began to perfect, you know, under Reagan and then subsequently Bush. So consider that what I'm what I'm arguing basically is that as far as the CIA officers actually in the room with the, the Kerry committee investigators during those meetings in 1991. As far as they're concerned, it's very possible that they may well have been completely ignorant of much of what had gone on between BCCI and the agency. Um, if they're preparing briefings using documents that are being strictly controlled by agency higher-ups, they really only know what they're being told. So in that sense, it isn't entirely accurate to say the CIA per se colluded with BCCI or sought to hide that from the Kerry committee. But rather, it's more accurate to say that elements and factions within the agency had done so. And at that point, we're not really talking about the CIA anymore. We're talking about the network of networks of which the CIA is just one part, an incredibly influential part, but still just one part. We're talking about the beast the supranational deep state. And of course, it, it did eventually come out that the agency, or again, elements within the agency, had been well aware of what BCCI was up to for years and that it had worked closely with it to coordinate operations, you know, even going so far as to keep other federal agencies and government departments in the dark about it all. In fact, um, the BCCI affair goes on to say, quote, the CIA's first user request in connection with BCCI was from the Federal Reserve in 1981, 
which asked the CIA whether the CIA had any derogatory information concerning the Middle Eastern shareholders who were about to buy Financial General Bank Shares, FGB, which later became First American Bank Shares through the holding company CCAH. The CIA, after reviewing its records, told the Federal Reserve that it had no derogatory information on the shareholders, who included, again, Kamal Adham, and Abdul Rauf Khalil, the past and then current Saudi intelligence liaisons to the United States. What you should be getting a feel for here is how, for as complex and tangled as, you know, a Bay of Pigs, a Watergate, a JFK hit, whatever, as complex and tangled as that is, the 1980s were going to go far beyond that. Um, they were going to become a kind of kaleidoscopic crazy making fractal swirls of connections and chaos and they were the CIA were going to begin using the the bureaucratic state more and more to its advantage as they are doing here um, Kamal Adham had been head of Saudi intelligence during the same period that Bush was director of the CIA and he was conducting you know his own cleanup effort um, with Bush's blessing, Adham and Alexandra de Moranches had led the charge to create Safari Club, you know, the so-called second CIA. Quote, again from the BCCI affair, the CIA did not tell the Federal Reserve that Adham and Khalil were foreign intelligence liaisons of the United States, nor did it advise the Federal Reserve that both Adham and a third FGB shareholder, Faisal al-Fulayish, had been the subject of a Securities and Exchange Commission probe in connection with violations of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act by Boeing and Lockheed for arms sales to Saudi Arabia. You can f uh, hear more about the, the Lockheed bribery scandal in, I believe, the last episode. So here we have that tangled issue, basically, of who knows what at the agency at any given moment. Because if you got George Bush in one of those meetings with the Kerry Committee, then he would be outright lying if he said he had no knowledge of CIA, BCCI collusion, you know, just like with the Safari Club, Bush had taken the lead in setting up the clandestine financial and political networks that were its lifeblood. But some random CIA analysts, you know, some admin drone, they might well have been telling the truth to the Kerry committee if they said they had no knowledge about the nature of CIA and BCCI dealings because they weren't meant to know anything about it, which is exactly what it was intended to be, you know, using that kind of hapless dupe, plausible deniability. And furthermore, with the Safari Club, we see how the spooks who cleaved more towards that dullest vision would use their official connections to pursue private agendas while they were waiting for an ideal candidate to be elected president. It fell to people like Bush and Ted Shackley to figure out how to circumvent US government oversight, you know, especially the Carter administration, in order to support these off-the-books anti-communist intelligence ops in Africa, the Middle East, Europe, elsewhere, in conjunction with other private agents from around the world. As Joseph Trento says, quote, unless Shackley took direct action to complete the privatization of intelligence operations, the Safari Club would not have a conduit to CIA resources. The solution 
create a totally private intelligence network using CIA assets until President Carter could be replaced. Now put a pin in that final section about Carter because we'll be circling back. So I think it's fair to conclude that what Reagan as president offered was a chance for the old boy network, you know, personified by people like Bush and Shackley and Bill Casey, a chance for them to reset the clock in some respects. And the way to get around the split that had developed in the agency between the old boys and what we'll call, you know, the idealists after the family jewels revelations and Watergate and so on. Well, the solution was simple and it was remarkably effective in healing this divide. Basically, um, the old boys would incorporate the split and they would use it to their advantage. They would nurture a CIA within the CIA and they would build the walls between these different parts of the agency even higher. They would further entrench, you know, the obsessive compartmentalization and the strictly control flow of information. And that way, the hope was that if another scandal developed and a Senate committee ever came knocking again, you'd be assured that lots of CIA officers could plausibly plead total ignorance because the cult of secrecy would be reconstituted under Reagan, stronger, stronger and more suffocating to the point where George Bush, as vice president, would be able to oversee and profit from a vast arms and drug trafficking network that financed dirty wars in the Middle East and Latin America in conjunction with the CIA, while other parts of the agency genuinely seem to have believed that they really were fighting narco-terrorism in South America or the Soviet menace in Afghanistan. In a very real sense, that core group of operators who'd been there at the beginning of the CIA and the ones like Bush who arrived half a generation or so afterwards. The ones who came up through the Iranian coup, Guatemala, Cuba, the Bay of Pigs, the JFK hit and beyond. That network had effectively transcended the CIA thanks to the adept politicking and maneuvering of Poppy and, and people like him. It was an astonishing bit of subterfuge, and it speaks to Poppy's incredible skills as an operator that despite this, he's still largely seen as a slightly weedy, but otherwise well-meaning and decent, if somewhat, you know, limited politician in the popular imagination. But Reagan would still need to be watched and managed. Uh, he seemed the safest possible bet for president, but you know, the agency had been here before. His administration would become one of the spookiest in American history. Um, almost everyone of note connected to almost every awful thing the US has done since the Second World War had a seat at the table. And it started with Reagan's number two, his vice president, George Bush. That was the opening hour of the final installment of our casino mini series. If you want to hear more, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash ghost stories for the end. There's about another 90 or so minutes where we discuss 
the destruction of Jimmy Carter, the rise of Ronald Reagan, the consolidation of the Bush enterprise, and more besides, including Le Cercle. So yeah, if that sounds like your cup of tea, then why not head on over to Patreon and throw a little money in the kitty. As ever, thanks for listening and don't get captured. <laughs>